Well, uh, last Sunday when I shared with you uh, on the topic of why the gospel is good news for those who are both concerned or worried and those who are carefree, uh, I began by sharing with you some of the things that have been on my mind that week, some of the things that had been concerning me. And I thought, uh, especially given the fact that I made some of you quite worried and anxious for me uh, in doing so, I'd just give you an update on how things went this week. Um, firstly, uh, both the noise, creaking noise my bike had been making and the creaking noise my car had been making had been fixed. So there you go, both went into the shop and both got fixed. Um, my, my vision is still uh, blurry, but I was able to call my mum and find out that she's doing well and uh, to get in touch with an old colleague down in Lismore and find out that church is going just fine without me. Amazing. Um, I did get to uh, spraying the weeds coming up uh, in the paving and they're already going brown, go round up. Um, so uh, lots of progress made. Uh, I did get to uh, speak with some of those who uh, I hadn't been able to speak to. I'd been able to visit uh, some of the sick people in church. So all in all, a pretty good week. And to top it all off, turns out that the leader of the free world is actually neither Donald Trump or Joe Biden, but the Lord Jesus Christ. So good news, hey? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Uh, set your minds at ease. And uh, there's always it's always good looking back on things that you've been concerned about and praying about, isn't it? And saying, wow, right, God actually has been uh, concerned for me. He cares. Uh, and uh, he looks after us. Well, how about we pray that as we uh, approach this topic, a uh, very, I think, important and relevant topic in our lives of uh, money and wealth, uh, we'll see again. Uh, just how good the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much uh, that in your word you say all the things that we need to hear, uh, not necessarily the things that we want to hear, not written in the way that we would have written them, um, but you reveal to us what is true and right and good. Uh, Father, we ask that you will help us all to listen tonight to you uh, with open minds and open hearts, uh, ready to hear any correction or rebuke that we might need uh, and eager also to hear any uh, teaching or encouragement or training in righteousness that you might provide through your word and your spirit tonight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to kick off tonight by um, introducing you to two men uh, who are no longer alive but uh, were figures in the 20th century, uh, two men who were similar in terms of being both extremely wealthy men and yet who had very different approaches uh, to their wealth and how they used it and what it was for. Uh, the first man was a man by the name of John D. Rockefeller, uh, an American uh, oil tycoon uh, who was one of the richest men in America, in fact, I think at one time the richest man in America and therefore uh, the richest man in the world as well. Uh, and on one occasion, a young reporter asked a, a very uh, striking question to Rockefeller and the question was simply this, Mr. Rockefeller, will you ever have enough? Will you ever be satisfied? And apparently Rockefeller said, son, satisfied? Do you think I would be this rich if I was satisfied? No, I will never be satisfied. I will never have enough. I will always want just one dollar more. Wow. Well, it was pretty clear about it. He was pretty honest about it. Now, it seems for Rockefeller, money was really just about 
uh, accumulation and making himself great. He was never going to be satisfied. He knew that and he didn't seem to have a problem with it. Uh, the other man that I wanted to talk about, uh, introduce to you, is a man by the name of Oscar Schindler. Now you may have heard of Schindler uh, because of the uh, 1993 film uh, of uh, Steven Spielberg that he won an Oscar for. I only just realised this afternoon, Oscar, Oscar, interesting. Anyway, uh, and it was about this guy, a German industrialist by the name of Oscar Schindler. Now uh, Schindler also was a man who uh, loved money, was very wealthy and uh, saw the Second World War as an opportunity to make a bundle, to make a load of it. Uh, and one of the ways that he did that was to get on side uh, with the, uh, the German, with the Reich uh, in Germany, and to employ lots of Jewish people in his factories, uh, not because he had a soft spot for Jewish people, but because they were cheap labour at the time. But as the war went on, Schindler witnessed uh, what many people witnessed, and that was uh, the atrocities uh, of the Holocaust. Uh, he witnessed the random uh, killing of Jewish people, and it uh, changed his life forever. So much so that in the last three years of the Second World War, he uh, exhausted all his wealth in uh, paying bribes to uh, the German army and the German soldiers in order to find ways, so that he could find ways of protecting uh, Jewish people from uh, having to go to the concentration camps. Now at the end of the movie, and perhaps there's some poetic license here, I don't know if this actually ever happened, but at the end of the movie, uh, Schindler had timed things perfectly. Uh, as the Russians came in uh, to liberate uh, Poland and Germany, uh, and uh, Schindler himself had to escape, he had to flee, uh, he is pictured at the end of the, uh, of the movie uh, falling down on his knees and sobbing because uh, of his anguish at not being able to do more. He looks down at himself and he sees a little lapel pin. It must have been you know, expensive or made of gold or something like that. And he pulls it off and he said, this, this, I could have given this. It was the last thing of any value that he owned and I could have saved just one more. So you have Rockefeller on the one hand, just one dollar more, one dollar more, and Schindler on the other hand, if only I could have saved just one more. It's a very different attitude, isn't it, to what wealth is and what it could be used for. I wonder what you think made the difference between those two men. It just seems to me that Schindler realised that uh, there was a higher calling. Uh, not necessarily from God for Schindler, I'm not sure. Uh, but when he was confronted with the plight of real-life people facing the atrocities of the Holocaust and he saw that he could use his wealth to help save them, well, that was something that he could live for. That was something that he could give his all for. Now, if I were to ask you, would you rather be like John D. Rockefeller or Oscar Schindler? I'm pretty sure you would say you would much rather be like Oscar Schindler. And yet I suspect that you also know the pull of one dollar more. I suspect that you also know that uh, in your heart you do put trust in wealth to some extent and you do have a desire to accumulate to some extent just to be safe, just to be secure. 
because we do live in a world and, and in a culture that values wealth, don't we? That, that appreciates wealth, that is wealthy, that is rich. I mean, you probably know the stats as well as I do. Australia, on the measure of median wealth, so what the average net worth of an individual is, is the second richest country in the world. There are other measures, of course, where we don't quite hit those dizzying heights, but we're still in the top 20 in any measure. Uh, and that means, by that median wealth uh, measure, that we are 26 times wealthier, the average Australian is 26 times wealthier than the average human. And the average Australian is 832 times wealthier than the average person in the second poorest country in the world, Sudan. We are rich. Even those of us here, you might be thinking, but I'm just young, I'm just a student, I've got nothing. Sure, but you live in a wealthy culture. And yet the interesting thing is that I've never really met anyone who thinks they're rich. You know, I, I ask people, I hear people talk, and I think about the way that I think myself, and we don't think we're rich because we don't feel that we're rich. And why is that? Because everyone around us is. And we just compare ourselves to everyone around us. You know, uh, it was my birthday on Friday. Happy birthday to me. Uh, and uh, we went out for breakfast on Saturday morning. So me and the family went out for breakfast down at Main Beach. And uh, I didn't pay the bill because it was my birthday. Uh, Susie paid the bill. Uh, and, um, and so I don't know exactly how much it cost, but I, I could take a stab and I reckon it cost us about 100 bucks. 100 bucks for breakfast. <laughs> wow, we, we could just go and just 100 bucks for breakfast, not a problem. Enjoy it, walk out walked back to the car, and then, you know, my, my conscience was ultimately south when we got back to the car and I saw the Lamborghini parked in front of us. <laughs> See, uh, there's always someone wealthier than you. Uh, it, it's totally reasonable for me to spend $100 on breakfast if someone's spending half a million dollars on a Lamborghini, aren't they? Uh, isn't it? I was very careful as I pulled out from the parking spot, I can assure you. Uh, but my goal today isn't actually to make you feel rich or even to convince you that you are rich, are rich, at least not rich in that sense. Because I reckon even if I could, even if I could do that job, I don't think it would help you to be generous. Uh, at best, it might shame you into giving more, but that's not the same as being generous. Because generosity is actually a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of dollars. It's a matter of your heart. In fact, it seems that generosity has very little to do with whether you are rich or poor. Uh, so don't think that just because you're not rich or you don't have that much, that there's no calling to be generous. No, no. Anyone can be generous. And we're going to see that together tonight. Becoming truly generous, becoming what the Bible calls a cheerful giver. Isn't that a cute phrase? I think that's a really beautiful phrase. Cheerful giver. Becoming that person is all about discovering that you are rich, but in a very different kind of way. You do possess even greater wealth than you realise or than the stats might suggest. To think about this together, we're going to look at that passage that we read earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. Uh, in the first part, uh, chapter 8, we meet, uh, we're introduced to two models, two awesome models of generosity. Uh, and the first of those we meet in the first verse, 
Uh, and this is a, a group of Christians known as the Macedonian churches. So Macedonia, uh, it's sort of just above Greece, uh, to get our geography right. And I should mention what's going on here. So Paul is talking to the Corinthians, right? So this is in Corinthians. He's talking to the Corinthians and holding the Macedonians up as an example for them, as a model for them. Uh, and he refers to uh, their giving, how much the Macedonians or, or the attitude of the Macedonians to giving. Now, the, the context here is that on one of Paul's missionary journeys, one of the main goals that he had was as he went around visiting the churches and planting new churches, he told them, every one of them, about the need in Jerusalem. Uh, and he took up a collection. Well, as he went all the way along for, for months and for years, he took up this collection for the church in Jerusalem. Now, there are two reasons that this collection was necessary. The first reason is because in Jerusalem, they'd experienced a famine, first of all. So there, were, uh, there was uh, you know, great hardship as, as a result of that. Uh, but also, uh, there was always a, a degree of persecution for the church in Jerusalem, both from the Romans uh, and also from the Jews who had rejected Jesus um, and didn't want to have anything to do with the Christians. Uh, so that was one reason, and, and Paul wanted to alleviate their hardship and their suffering. But there was actually an even bigger reason. So this isn't just about helping those who are poor. It goes deeper than that. And the bigger reason is that Paul was very concerned that this young church, this fledgling church, and I don't just mean the Corinthians or the Macedonians, I mean the church, the entire church, was in danger of being torn in two because of two not factions, but two groups within it, those who were ethnically Jewish and those who were Gentiles. There was great danger that what would actually happen is that two churches would evolve uh, rather than one united church. And Paul's goal was, as he went around these Gentile areas, was to collect money from them that they were happy to give to support the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish church. Because Paul knew that that would be a sure sign to the Jewish church that there is no divide, that, that it's not us and them, that the Gentiles aren't against them or trying to take over. The Gentiles really care and love them as brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you think about it like that, if you understand that, you might see the high stakes. You might understand uh, why this issue is so important, why Paul is so uh, urgent in encouraging generosity. It's not just that they would be generous people but that Paul wants the church to be united and generosity could play a part in creating and maintaining the unity. So that, that's the context of what's going on here. Uh, so let's meet these people, these uh, Macedonians who are being held up as a model. Verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So what's the first thing that we learn about the Macedonians? Well, they were poor. They were poor. Uh, hard to know whether they were just kind of always poor uh, or perhaps it's something to do with this severe trial that they're experiencing, this very severe trial that has caused them to be poor. In fact, they're not just poor, they are extremely poor. So these are not wealthy people, they are extremely poor people. And yet, in spite of that, they're generous. In fact, I would suggest that perhaps even 
even because of their extreme poverty, maybe they're generous. And you might be thinking, hang on, how does that work? How could extreme poverty create rich generosity? Why would that be a logical thing? Surely, surely that the wealthier you are, the more generous you are. That makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? But actually it's not true. It never has been true. It wasn't then and it isn't now. The fact is that the more you have, the wealthier you are, the less proportionally generous you are, the less you give. Wealthier people, as a percentage, do not give more. They give less of what they have. They're just the facts. Uh, And the suggested reason for that is because wealthy people tend to have a really strong belief in the idea of agency. What that means is they're pretty convinced that they're wealthy because they've made their own wealth. They are the agent who has created their own wealth. And the only reason that people are poor is because they haven't. And that's why they tend not to be generous. Whereas the poor person is motivated by something different altogether. See, the poor person knows what it's like to be poor. The poor person experienced what the psychologists call communion with other poor people. And that communion, that fellowship, as if you like, makes them generous. It makes them want to give. They give what they can to help those who are also in need. And I wonder if that's what's going on amongst the Macedonians. Yet I also wonder if it's not quite enough, if, if it's not quite enough to explain the generosity of the Macedonians, because we haven't really heard yet just how incredible their generosity is. Keep reading from verse 3 with me. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, so to the limit and then beyond, and even beyond their ability. Now, how do you do something that's beyond your ability? I mean, it doesn't even seem to make sense, does it? Maybe they had no more to give and so they borrowed from someone else so that they could give that. I think perhaps what this means is that they chose to go without. So they gave any excess that they had And then they gave what they really needed. They even gave that so that others wouldn't miss out. This generosity is really radical. And incredibly, they didn't even have to wait to be asked. They took initiative in being generous. Have a look uh, at verse 4, just before verse 4. Entirely on their own, without being prompted, they urgently pleaded with us, for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. You know, when someone comes knocking on your door and asking for money, you know, for this charity or that charity, do you go, oh, my goodness, at last you've come. Oh, thank you. I've been waiting. I heard that you were going up and down the street and I went running to look for you, but you were nowhere and now you're here. Is that how you do it when someone comes knocking on your door asking for money? Seems to be what the Macedonians were pretty much doing. They urgently pleaded for the privilege of being engaged in this service to the saints. This is pretty out there, don't you think, in terms of generosity? It's incredible. So where does this kind of generosity spring from? What could possibly prompt it? I think in verse 2 we get a little bit of a clue. Uh, Because their extreme poverty isn't the only thing that's producing this rich generosity. Notice their overflowing joy plus their extreme poverty equal 
rich generosity. So there's some sort of joy, some, some delight that they possess inside them that just kind of causes generosity to bubble up. Where does that joy come from? We'll go back again to the first verse, and I think we see the answer. Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. See, it's actually God's generosity to the Macedonians that prompts their generosity to overflow to others. Uh, That word grace is also used a little later on uh, in verse 9 when Paul says to the Corinthians, you know the grace that prompted generosity for the Macedonians? Well, you know that grace too. Have a look at verse 9. He's calling them out. He's calling them to follow the Macedonians in their example. And he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to know what's going to produce rich generosity, here is the answer. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Where does generosity come from? It comes from the gospel. It comes when people are profoundly won over and transformed by the gospel of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it turns out that though most wealthy people aren't particularly generous, Jesus is the exception to the rule. Jesus was rich. That's what we read here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Now, as far as I know, that's not true of the Jesus that walked the earth. It's not like, uh, you know, he lived in a bling house down in, you know, uptown Nazareth uh, or anything like that and lived the high life. Far from it. Uh, The riches that we're reading about here are the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we were to translate that, notice uh, if you've got your Bible there, the Lord is uh, in little capital letters. That's the God name from the Old Testament. Okay, The Lord Jesus Christ really means God, Jesus, the King. That's who we're talking about here. That's the one who was rich. How rich was God, Jesus, the King? And Jesus was rich in ways that we can't even begin to understand. Jesus is a resident of heaven. You know, the one who is the son of the father, the one who lived in untold majesty and wealth and honour and glory from before time began. That's the Jesus we're talking about. We can't fathom what those riches even look like. And yet... For your sake, he became poor. How poor? Well, that we can perhaps begin to understand because we know the story. We know that that Jesus chose to turn his back on the glory of heaven so that he could be born as a mortal in a stable, grow up in the back streets of Nazareth, apprentice to his father as a carpenter, living an obedient life, you know, he said of his own life, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was a man with no possessions. He was a man scorned, despised and rejected. And he ended his life naked and bloody on a Roman cross with soldiers gambling for his clothes, the last, his last possession, until 
the last thing that he had, his breath, he breathed out and he died. See, he became poor for your sake. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Through his poverty. You see, God looked down from heaven and he saw our poverty. He, he saw not, not our material poverty, but our spiritual poverty. In fact, he saw that we were worse than poor. We, we didn't just have a zero balance in the bank account. In terms of sin, we had racked up a great debt. You had and I had, and so had everyone who, have, who has ever lived. And God determined that he would do what was necessary, do the only thing that could make a difference, do the only thing that could make a payment. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the rich one of heaven, to become the poor one on earth so that our debt could be paid. See, that's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure you've heard it before, the acronym GRACE, God's Riches, His Son, at Christ's Expense. And that's what produces the generosity that we see in the Macedonians. That's what Paul points to for the Corinthians, ultimately. He said the Macedonians, that's awesome, but they were just modelling that on someone else. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the one thing that can produce this kind of beautiful generosity that we see amongst the Macedonians, amongst us as well. When we understand that the Lord of heaven became the lowliest of men for us, the richest became the poorest so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And what's the nature of our wealth now? Folks, it's not what you own. It's not what you possess. It's not what's in your pocket. It's not the car that you drive out to that you go out to to drive home. The riches that you possess are the riches that belong to Jesus Christ. Now that's profound. For he didn't just become poor, he gave us his riches. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, then what you own, what belongs to you, is everything that belongs to Jesus Christ, not earthly, fleeting, grasping rich, not John D. Rockefeller rich, Rich like Jesus, sons and daughters of heaven, blessed in Christ Jesus in this life with every spiritual blessing and looking forward to an inheritance that is lasting and satisfying and will never be taken away from us. And so I want to ask you tonight, do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you? And run this test on yourself. See, Paul seems to be telling the Corinthians that a really good test of how well you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is how easily, joyfully, and sacrificially you give. So run that test. And don't feel guilty about it. Just recognise that the way to do something about it is to grow in your appreciation of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because that's what transforms us. It's what transformed the Macedonians. It's what Paul is hoping will transform the Corinthians. And it's what can transform us as well and our attitude to wealth and what we think it's for. 
In chapter 9, uh, Paul continues to motivate the Corinthians towards generosity, but he shifts his focus from presenting models or examples to them to showing them how many good things flow from generosity. When we're generous, the, the results that just knock on from that. And so in verse 6, he introduces this idea of a, or a analogy of a harvest. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, some people distort this kind of verse and they preach that if you give to God, then he will give even more back to you. You know, give him 10 bucks, he'll give you 100. He'll make you rich. Now, that's a load of rubbish, and it's clear that that's a load of rubbish because of the way that Paul goes on to describe the nature of the harvest here. But let's take a look at the, the harvest that grows when we sow, that is, when we give generously. Uh, in verse 7, there's an instruction about how to give. Each of you, and it really does mean each of you, by the way, uh, God wants all of us to be generous. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Notice that there's no figure given. There's not even a percentage given. Unlike the Old Testament where uh, Israel was called to give a tenth of all that they had, I think there's no number here given because, come on, in response to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, a tenth? (laughs) What's that? That's not generous. Not at all. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. See, God says, uh, Paul says to the Corinthians and to us that the reason we're able to give and to do it cheerfully is because God looks after us. God blesses us abundantly with all that we have. I mean, think of all that you have. have, You're not going to miss out. Are you actually worried about what you're going to eat tomorrow? You're not. I'll tell you why you're not. Because God looks after you. He has for every day up until now and he will continue to do so. And so you can be generous so that in all things at all time, having all that you need, you will abound. And this is where we start getting a glimpse into the nature of the harvest. You will abound, that is, you will be rich in every good work. You will do good things. You will serve other people. You will love other people with what? God has given you and the opportunities that he gives you and the time and the talents as well as the treasure that he gives you. Uh, In verse 8, yeah, sorry, and then in verse 10, it kind of repeats verse 8, but it's even clearer about the nature of the harvest. He, that is God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. As generosity grows in you, as you practice generosity towards others, uh, you grow to be more like Jesus. Uh, And that harvest doesn't just happen inside of you. It actually happens as others benefit as well. In verse 11, you will be enriched in every way. Why? Why will God be generous towards you? So that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will, will result in thanksgiving to God. See, here's the way that it's meant to work. God blesses us, and he does. We can't argue about that. God has blessed us. But why? We're not meant to be like a cul-de-sac, a dead end, where the blessing just comes in and stops with us and we hold on to it for ourselves. We're meant to be like a wide-open passage that God passes his blessings through. He blesses us, and we're meant to just pass it straight on 
uh, and see that others benefit from it. So we're generous and righteousness grows. Righteousness grows in us as we're generous. Help flows to other people who need it. Thanksgiving flows to God and people end up praising God because of the generosity that his grace has produced in us. That's a beautiful chain of events, don't you think? And that's how God intends for it to work. If we're stingy with God's blessings, everyone loses. If we're generous, everyone wins. Your generosity really is the gift that keeps on giving, quite literally. I asked you earlier whether you would rather be Rockefeller, one dollar more, or Schindler. If only I could save one more. And there's a sense in which we do want to be like Schindler, isn't there? We want to see that all that God has given us has the high purpose of seeing that others are saved. What better thing could you spend your money on? What better thing could you use your wealth for? I bet you can't trumpet. But really, I want to ask you tonight, wouldn't you like to be like Jesus? Wouldn't you like to be like Jesus? Who, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, generous just isn't a big enough word for what you have given us because we understand that it's not a what, it's a who. You've given us your son, the Lord Jesus Christ that we were poor, we were destitute, we were in debt. And rather than despise us or demand that we pay that debt, you sent Jesus to pay it on our behalf. The only one who could did. Father, I pray that you'll help us to, to really marvel at your grace to us to really love the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us, who gave up his riches and became poor for us. So that that love for him, that appreciation of your grace to us will, as it did in the Macedonians, overflow. And Father, we, in contrast to them, we we are rich in material terms. They gave abundantly and gave more than they were able. I can only imagine what our generosity could do given all that we have. Father, we could see many saved through our generosity, through our example, through the example of the way that your grace is at work among us and the gospel is real and powerful and true, as well as through the practical help that that those gifts could bring. So, Father, I pray for every one of us here tonight that by your spirit and through the gospel of grace, you would make us generous people today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives, that we might even have the goal of getting to the end of our lives spent with nothing left to show and not needing it either because our inheritance is kept safely for us in heaven. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.